Bibles open to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. We continue our series that we've entitled Rooted and Grounded. Rooted in the love of Christ and grounded for the Christian life. And we said that the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians is all about being rooted in the love of Christ. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 is all about being grounded for the Christian faith. And we said we cannot truly live the Christian life unless we first are grounded and rooted in the love of Christ. Ephesians chapter 2. Today I want to speak to you on the topic of the new life. The new life we have in Christ. Christ came that we might be saved that we might experience the saving grace and the mercy of God. The Bible says that Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost. Salvation, salvation, possibly the greatest thing of the takeaway from the message today is this simple statement. Salvation is found in Christ and in Him alone. Will you please stand in the honor of reading God's Word, Ephesians chapter 2. I'll be reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version, but you follow along in your translation as I read from mine. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse number 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's speaking of Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh. So here Paul identifies the three that war against us, the world, Satan, and the flesh. And the mind were the nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Father, we thank you for this word. And Father, as we speak and talk about the new life today, Lord, I pray that you will open our hearts, that you will open our minds, that we, we may receive your word today. For it's in Christ's name we pray, and all of God's people said, let it be. Please be seated. Salvation is found in Christ and Christ alone. Three points to the message, very simple points. Number one, man's problem is sin. Man's problem is sin. The first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2 speak of the terrible condition of being dead in trespasses and falling in sin. The scripture says in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is what? Death. We are the living dead. Here again, we find in the scripture, the scripture speaking of zombies, the walking dead. That was a joke. You can laugh. It doesn't really speak of zombies. But it does say that we are dead men walking. That, that we are walking, that our heart is beating, but yet we are dead. The Bible speaks of those who are alive, yet we are dead. Paul is not simply using a figure of speech here. You say, well, he's being metaphorical. No, he's not. He's speaking honestly. He, he's describing the, the spiritual nature of those who are without Christ. If you're here today and you're not a believer... If you're here today and you do not follow Christ and He is not your Savior and your Lord and your Messiah, 
If you have never in your life placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Bible says, you, my friend, are dead. When he says dead, he means dead. D-E-A-D, dead. Dead in trespasses and sins. The consequence is eternal death. You say, well, what part of us is dead? I, I feel pretty alive, preacher. My heart's beating, my mind's functioning, I feel pretty alive. What, what's dead? The part of you that's dead is the part that matters the most. The part that God created for eternity. The part that God had made to live forever. You understand that you are made for eternity, right? That you are created to live forever. And the spirit, the soul, the the part of you that God created, our body, yes, it fails. Yes, our body falls away. But but God created our soul, our our, our spirit to, to live for eternity. You say, well, I don't feel dead. The Bible says the part that's made for God is spiritually dead. Let's put this to a test. Sarah and I are beginning to realize this as our sweet little Abigail is almost five and Elijah has probably done more bad things in his little nine months than Abby has done in five years. But we're learning and we're seeing that you don't have to teach. Let's put it to a test. Do you have to teach a child to steal? No. Do you have to teach a child that when mommy and daddy says, go clean your room, do you have to teach the child to, 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 uh, to not do what you told them to do? To go play with their toys instead? No. Do you have to teach a child to to throw tantrums? To lie? You see, you're laughing because you know that you don't have to teach children to break the law. You don't have to teach children to break the law of God, to disobey God's law. You have to teach them what? To respect God's law to honor God's law, to, to, to live towards God's law. You see, every one of us were born dead. David said that it was through the womb, through birth, I, I was conceived. I was born in death. I was a dead man walking. And you don't have to teach children to, to disrespect or to do these things because it comes natural. The Bible here in Ephesians says it's one of the three enemies that we face, the world, Satan and the flesh. And all of these are warring against us. All of these are warring in our body. The word trespass here in chapter 2, verse 1, it means a misstep. It's as if you're walking down the street and you, you stumble, you, you fall, you miss a step. And all of us in life, we stumble. All of us in life, we, we fall and we fail along the way. That's the picture of a trespass. The word sin is the word hamartia in Greek. It, you've, you've heard this said before. It's the picture of an archer, a, 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 an archer taking a bow and arrow and, and shooting the arrow towards the bullseye and missing the mark every single time. That's the definition of sin. So he says here, the trespass is a misstep. Sin is missing the mark. The waywardness, the cro- crookedness of sin, missing the mark. We all missed up. We all missed the mark. And the consequence of sin is spiritual death. Now, spiritual death does not mean that you simply cease to exist. You see, God created within all of us this innate desire to know Him. God created all of us with this, this God-sized vacuum in our heart. To, and, and you have the option. God gives you the opportunity to fill that with whatever you want to fill it with. And so some people fill it with drugs. 
Some people fill it with alcohol. Some people fill it with, with promiscuity. Others fill it with, with so many other things. And they come to the end of their life and they say, is this all that life has to offer? Because you see, I, I don't have true peace. I don't have true joy. I, I, I've tried to fill this void and I know there's something missing in my life. The only thing, the only thing that can fill the God-sized vacuum in your heart is God himself. Spiritual death does not mean that you simply cease to exist. It means that you live in eternity without Him. The Bible teaches we are created for eternity. Spiritual death in the Bible means spiritual damnation, eternal separation from God. And there in verse 2, Paul speaks of the world, the culture, the system that, that sucks us in. And of course, the, the world system, the, 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 the culture of our time sets us up for failure. The world doesn't want you to succeed. Satan doesn't want you to succeed. And surely your flesh does not want you to succeed. They all want you to misstep, to miss the mark. The world wants you to miss God. In fact, Paul goes on to write that it's the world system that tries to suck you into the world. I want you to see this in your Bible because I'm about to get on my soapbox for just a moment. And I want you to see what the Bible says in verse 2 and 3. I want you to underline this because I want you to understand that what I'm about to talk about is simply pointing out the tragedy that is within the world today. The world wants to do whatever it can to pull us away from Christianity, from the God of the Bible. You know, I hear people say, and I, I, you're taught in seminary, that when you're taught to preach, they, they teach you that through preaching, you want to apply the text. How do you apply the text? So you read a, a verse of Scripture and, and how you apply the text. And so I was praying this week about Ephesians 2 and saying, God, how is it that I would apply Ephesians 2 in this sermon that you've led me to preach? And I turned on Fox News and I saw what's going on in, the, in our country right now as we're sitting here. And God said, he, he hit me over the head and he said, this is the point. This is what we're fighting. Now, I need to say something that may rub some people the wrong way. But it's important. How is it that a Christian can follow the course of this world? Let me rephrase the question. It shouldn't surprise us that the world desires to establish laws that are contrary to God's Word. This should not surprise us at all. However, what has me simply dumbfounded is how in the world a professing Christian, listen to me, how in the world a professing Christian can go along with creation of laws that are anti-Bible and anti-God? Let me bring this home for just a moment this morning. Let me walk right up to you, if I could, in your pew and get right in your face. I put a breath in my mouth so my breath doesn't stink. But maybe I need to walk up and, and, and come right face to face with you this morning and call some of us out. You know, we come to church and we want to amen. And it's good to amen. It's good to laugh. It's good to come in and, and feel nourished. But sometimes we need the omis. Sometimes we need to be corrected. This past week, the Supreme Court of the United States was deliberating at length on the legality of homosexual marriage. At this point, both sides are claiming victory, but it's still too early to tell. The sad thing is, what dumbfounds me 
is that the Christian community is divided over this issue. I have a real problem with that. How in this world can you be a Bible-believing Christian and not know what side you you should be standing on in this matter? You have the world system, Ephesians chapter 2. The world is going to tell you what the world is going to tell you. You have the world system, but you also have the system of God. Let me say a couple of things, and then we're going to move on. If you'll allow me to stay on my soapbox for just a little bit longer. Thank you, John. At least one person wants me to preach it. Thank you, brother. <laughs> All right, that's three. So three of us are together. We'll, we'll do it together. But, you know, it shouldn't surprise us what's going on. You know, sinners are going to do what sinners are going to do, right? And also, please understand that what's going on in our world today has absolutely nothing to do with homosexuality. It has nothing to do with it. You say, preacher, you're crazy. It has everything. I thought you said it was about homosexual marriage, but I don't believe it has anything to do with homosexuality. I believe that what we're seeing in our country today is a concerted effort by radicals to dismantle the very foundation our country was founded upon. Our country... Our country was founded upon this book. Our country was founded upon the scripture. Our, God, our, our country was founded upon the Judean Christian God. I said a few weeks ago that this country, I love this country because of the freedom this country has. I love and I respect each one of you who served in the armed forces and fought for the freedom that we have. I love and I respect each one of you men and women who put on the uniform and went around the world to fight for freedom around this world so that others can experience this. But what we're experiencing now in our country is, has nothing to do with a particular sin. What we are seeing in our country is a concerted effort by the world, by Satan, and by the flesh. The three enemies that we find here in Ephesians 2, we find these enemies at work among us right now. Don't be confused. What we're seeing is the, the stripping away of the fabric. Remember what we said a few weeks ago. If you want to be a Muslim in our country, you can worship freely. You can be a Muslim all day long. If you want to be a Hindu, you want to be an atheist, if you want to be a homosexual, you have the freedom to do that. Every person in this country has the freedom to to live and to be and to practice whatever religion and whatever preference they want to have. That's the definition of freedom. If you don't believe there's freedom, take a Christian and put them in Iraq and see what happens for a Bible-believing Christian. What's going to happen? They're going to be attacked and killed because there's no freedom there. You take a homosexual and you put them in the country of Iraq, see what happens. They're going to be killed because there's no freedom there. Our country has freedom for everyone. So let's, let's not say that this is a particular issue. Also understand that this has not just happened in the past seven years. This has been a long time coming. Marriage in our country has lost its meaning in the 70s when divorce rates began to skyrocket. Marriage in the past five decades has become meaningless. And when there's a breakdown in the home, there's a breakdown everywhere else. When the home and marriage breaks down, everything else breaks down. This is why the Bible speaks so strictly and forthrightly about marriage and, and the confines of marriage. You go back to the very beginning, the book of Genesis. One man, one woman coming together forever. They are told to, to propagate and to fill the earth with their children. This is the definition of marriage. 
The Bible deals very strictly with this. You say, well, preacher, if it's not about homosexuality, then what is it about? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you what it's about. It's about control. Here's the opening paragraph of an article I just read this past week. If the Supreme Court were to rule in favor of making same-sex marriage a constitutional right, it would create a religious liberty issue for faith-based schools and churches that would cause them to be at risk of losing their tax-exempt status. Let me go on record right now and forthrightly so that everyone can hear me very clearly that if Aloma Church is ever given an ultimatum between accepting homosexual marriage and losing our tax-exempt status, we'll be paying taxes because we cannot condone... We cannot condone what God rejects. Now listen, we clap, but I, I, want, I want you to realize what we're saying here. Understand that if we lose our tax-exempt status, this will hurt this body. It'll hurt every church that takes the stand as we take the stand. Estimates right now say that if this goes through with the Supreme Court, that over 65% of evangelical churches will have to close their door within just a few days. Let's put that in real numbers. That's 165,000 Bible-believing, Jesus-confessing churches in our country that will have to shut their doors because they cannot afford to open them because they're paying taxes now. Have I got your attention yet? That's why this Thursday is so important. You say, what's this Thursday? This Thursday is the National Day of Prayer. If you cannot come into this, we're opening this sanctuary, the, the, the times are in your worship guide. If you can't come to this physical place to pray for our country, you need to pray wherever it is that you are for this country. You need to be praying that God will lead uh, the Supreme Court justices, that God will lead the president, the vice president, the House, and the Senate. You say, Pastor, why are you being so hateful toward the homosexual? Why are you trying to suppress their freedom? I have friends that are homosexual. I don't hate the homosexual. I believe they have the right and the freedom in our country to practice whatever they want to practice. But if you just heard me say that I hate the homosexual, you've completely missed the point and you don't know me very well. We don't hate anyone. We love every single person. But the Bible says that we are to disdain sin. We are to hate the sin, but to love the sinner. I'm not suppressing anyone's freedom. In fact, I'm for continuing freedom for everyone, religion and otherwise. But think about this. I want you to think about this. My, my freedom says that I can hold a conviction that homosexual marriage is wrong. I have the freedom to say and the conviction to say that homosexual marriage is wrong. Now, if the government tells me that I can no longer hold that conviction, what do they just do? They stole my freedom. Now, let me ask you a rhetorical question. Is it really freedom if you take it from one person and give it to somebody else? It's not freedom. You see, this has nothing to do with freedom. This has nothing to do with rights. What we're facing right now in our country is a First Amendment issue. Are we going to allow our government to control what we believe as a church? I say, no, we're not. And we will speak and we will share in church. We had better wake up. We're walking into some dark days. We're walking into some very dark days. You say, well, preacher, what's the point? If, if all these churches are going to have to close, if the government's going to set us, set us out, what in the world is going on? 
I do know this, that even though it's not going to be good if it happens, I do know this, that God is the one who sets the kings on the thrones, and he's also the one who removes the kings. All that this is going on, while we're waiting for the justices to report on what they're going to find, we know that God is sovereign, and God knows exactly what they're going to do. God is in control. And I also have the playbook. I know exactly what's going to happen. I know the Bible says that the world hates the church. Satan hates the church. Our flesh hates the church. And all three of those are warring against the church and warring against Jesus. Just like you don't have to teach a child to lie. Just like when you go into the world and you, you watch, just turn on the television. Just draw, look at the billboards. Look at the, what the world is saying. Just imagine Satan. You, you, you see the three enemies that we have here, and they're all against Jesus. They're all against God. They're all against this church. They're all against this book. But you know what? Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. I read, I read Revelation chapter 20, and I see that when Jesus comes back, he's going to come, and he's going to deliver his bride. The church has always had a witness in this world, and the church will always have a witness until we're caught up and we're raptured up. So I'm not concerned. Yes, the face of church may, may change. Yes, churches will close, but, but by and large, they can, they can shut us out of a building, but they cannot shut our mouth. The greatest power, the greatest thing that we have is our voice. We must take our voice and share it with those who need to hear it. God is the answer. God is the answer to our country's problems. The world, they offer pleasure, but they can never bring satisfaction. The world, they, they offer peace, but they can never give you true peace. The world offers happiness, but it can never give you full joy. Why is that? Because what the world offers, what Satan offers, what the flesh offers is not real. You say, well, why, why are we facing all this stuff? It's because of sin. When sin entered in, sin is dirty. Sin is nasty. Sin is ugly. You say, well, why is all this happening in our country? It's because our country, it's sin. We sin because we're sinners. We lie because we're liars. We steal because we're thieves. That's just three of the Ten Commandments. (laughs) The Ten Commandments, the law, I, I, I want you to think with me for just a moment. The Ten Commandments. We just mentioned three of them. Thou shalt not lie. Shall not steal. So I'm, I'm not stole anything. Well, when you were a child, you probably took something that didn't belong to you. Makes you a thief. You know, we're also, the Bible says we're also adulterers. Say, so wait a minute, preacher. I've never, I've always been faithful to my spouse. I have, I have never been unfaithful to my spouse. Jesus said that if you've lusted after a person in your heart, you've committed adultery already. We're also murderers. See, <laughs> I've never committed murder. Jesus said, if you hate a man in your heart, you've committed murder. So, I would submit to you that every person in this room has broken. That's just five. I won't go into the rest of them, but we've broken at least five of the commandments. We're liars, we're thieves, we're adulterers, we're murderers. Imagine if you could live life and you only broke one of the commandments in your life. 
pick your, pick your poison. Which one do you want to break? Imagine the Ten Commandments as ten chain links of metal. Solid chain. Every time you break that commandment, that you lose one of those links of metal chain and it becomes paper. It loses its strength. Let's say you just broke one of the commandments. You have one paper mache link in between nine metal links. How many of you would feel comfortable of taking that nine chain link metal uh, cord with only one piece of paper and hold and allowing me to throw you off a cliff and let you dangle by that? Why are you shaking your head? No, you've got nine metal ones. Only one is paper. Why, why, why would you not want to? Because you break them, you break one, it breaks it all. You break one, you weaken one, it weakens the whole thing. You see, that's why the Bible says if you could live your life and just live and commit only one sin, friend, you're found guilty. One sin, and you're found guilty. But you know, we have the luxury. We don't have to worry. Did I just commit one sin? We know we've committed sins. The Bible tells us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You say, wow, preacher, I didn't want to come to church and get lamb blasted like this. I wanted to hear something good. Well, listen, what makes the good news so good is the bad news. The bad news is that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. That's the bad news. Now let's move on to the good news. The good news is God's provision is for our salvation. While the fact is that we are lost in our sin, we are lost in our transgressions, God provides for us salvation. Chapter 2, verse 4 has this conjunctional phrase, but God I love that. But God, God intervened. God invested himself in his mercy toward us. God put upon his, God displayed his grace. He displayed his mercy. You know the difference between mercy and grace, right? Mercy, that means that God doesn't give us what we do deserve. You've heard people on, on law and order shows before. They, they say I, they, they're found guilty and they, they, they make a statement. I throw myself on the mercy of the court. What are they saying? They're saying, I, I am guilty, but don't, uh, God is that we don't get what we do deserve. That, that, that give me a, a lesser punishment. I put myself on the mercy. Mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. Grace is that God gives us what we don't deserve. Grace. What does he do by his grace? It's mentioned over and over here. His grace, his grace, his grace, his grace. His grace that we don't deserve heaven. We don't deserve a relationship with him. We don't deserve new life, but it's grace. It's God's grace. It's God's yes to our life. Have you ever noticed that some people just have a yes face? You just walk up and their face is just glowing and you want to be around them. And some people have a no face. They're just grumpy looking. A no face. Don't touch me. Don't get in my space. Lady Astor of England had a no face apparently. She was having tea with Winston Churchill, and she didn't like Winston Churchill. Very few people liked Winston Churchill, but she said to him one day, she said, Sir, if I were your, if I were your wife, I would put poison in your tea. To which Churchill responded, Madam, if you were my wife, I would drink it. <laughs> now that's a no face. But a yes face is when we look into the face of Jesus. We look into the face of God. Jesus reconciling the world unto himself. Yes, I love you. 
Yes, I will die for you. No, you don't deserve it, but yes, I will do it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It's not of works, verse 8 says. It's not of works. You cannot work your way into heaven. My former pastor used to say there ain't no strutting in heaven. If you can strut in heaven, then you got there by your own works. You can't get there by your own works. That's why there's no strutting in heaven. Every one of us that go to heaven, we go there because not of what we have done, but because of what he has done for us. Now, don't miss this because, you see, salvation is not getting man out of earth into heaven. Salvation is getting God out of heaven and into man. That's why Christianity is not a religion. Religion is man trying to please God, trying to seek God. Christianity is a relationship. It's God seeking man. And God is perusing. God is searching. Perhaps God right now, Revelation 3.10, is knocking at the heart of your very door. He's telling you that you're a sinner. He's telling telling you that you have broken his law. You have broken his commandment. And because of that, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. But the hope that I am sharing with you today is simply this. That even though the fact is that you may be dead in your trespasses and sins, Jesus came to give you life. To give you life. Salvation is not about a sick man getting well. Sin is not just some little sickness. It's not like pneumonia or or a cough. Salvation is not a sick man getting well. It's about a dead man getting life. And here it says in verse 5 that we are alive in Christ. The verb is in the Greek aorist tense. You say, "I, I don't know what that means. The aorist tense in the Greek language simply means that it's complete, it's final, it's full. Which means that when you're alive in Christ, there's nothing that needs to be added. We're no longer separated from God. We're no longer alienated from God, but we're made alive in Christ. No longer are we dead. No longer are we under the influence of the world or Satan or our flesh. Uh, All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. How many people wish they could have a start over, a do-over? You know, we live life and we think life is like a, a, a PlayStation 4 or an Xbox or a Nintendo that, that you're, you're just playing the game and it doesn't work right so you can just hit reset. There, there are very few reset buttons in life. Very few reset buttons in life. But God gives us a reset button right here, a big one. A big one. If you're looking at your life right now and you say, okay, I understand that my, my problem is sin. I understand that God provides salvation. What, what's the answer? What's the reset button? The reset button is your proposition. Your action is surrender. God offers this, but you see, God is a gentleman. He's not going to force himself on anyone. The Bible says he's knocking at the heart's door. He goes on to say, for by grace, you've been saved through faith. By grace, you've been saved through faith. Over in Ephesians chapter 1, it talks about belief. Not everyone will respond to his call, but those who respond to his call will be saved. Let me make this as plain and as clear as I possibly can. We're sinners. We're sinners. We've all fallen. We've all broken God's law. The Bible says, though, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God looked down and he saw our sin. He saw our desperate need for a Savior. God sent his Son. You see, if there is another way to be saved, if God was going to allow for us to to work our way to heaven or allow another avenue or another way or another door for salvation, the cross was a colossal mistake. Why would God the Father send his Son into this brutality of this world to, to suffer and to die on a cross if there was another way? There is no 
other way. Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. But God wants to make you alive. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5. We are alive in Christ. In while we're yet in our sins and our trespasses, Paul writes in verse 5 that he made us alive. A very wise man went to Jesus one day. It's found in John chapter 3. The man's name was Nicodemus. He was a preacher. He came to Jesus and he was concerned about something. He said, what must a man do to be saved? Live a good life, follow a religion. What is it that a man must do to be saved? And Jesus looked at him and he said, Nicodemus, you're dead. In order to be alive, you must be born again. You must be born again. Nicodemus said, born again? How in the world can I enter back into my mother's womb? Jesus said, no, 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 no. Every person's born through the womb of their mother. That's the first birth. Everybody has that. That's how sin enters in to the flesh. But you have to be born again. Not of your mother, not of flesh, but of the Spirit. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised from the dead, you shall be saved. You say, preacher, you don't know what I've done in my life. The man who wrote that, Romans chapter 10, his name was Paul. Before his name was Paul, his name was Saul. You know what his profession was? He was a murderer of Christians. Here's a man who God got a hold of his life. God got a hold of his heart, and he saved him. If God can save a murderer like Saul and call him, and possibly one of the greatest Christians who ever lived apart from Jesus was the Apostle Paul. If God can save a man like that, friend, he can save you. You say, well, I, I, I've got to work my way. I've got to do better. Preacher, I know you're going to give an invitation. You're going to invite me to come forward, but I've got to get some things right. Listen, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. The old hymn that we sing in the Baptist church is just as I am. You come just as you are. And the neat thing about our God is he takes you just as you are, broken, filthy, full of sin, dirty. He takes you just as you are. And he molds you. He shapes you. He cleanses you. He calls you. Yes, He gives you heaven, but He gives you life. He gives you purpose. He gives you joy. Who in here wants joy? Who in here wants peace? This is what God offers to those who are His children. 